Hey, I wasn't here last week. I was in Idaho enjoying some really uh, precious time with some good friends, but I missed you. And um, when I go a week without preaching, something kind of builds up inside. So, <laughs> and you get to experience that right now. First Peter, First Peter, that's where we are. By the way, if you're new with us, we welcome you. We are glad you're here. We hope you might stick around for a few minutes. I'd love to greet you, meet you. Uh, before you leave, but um, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Glad everyone could be here, regular tenders, members. First Peter chapter 1, this morning, looking at verses 13 through 16 as we make our way through this fantastic book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick up maybe one of the blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, and if you turn that one to page 1014, that'll bring you to our text. So, if you had to pick, like, the three top passages or text in the Word of God that you think would be important for a Christian to know, to remember, what might they be as you think about that? Maybe you, maybe you have that on your mind already, or maybe you've never thought about that, but the three top passages. I'm just saying three. I'm sure there's many more, but I was just thinking three. The reason I I ask that is just to get you thinking, because when I was going through my sermon studies this last week, I ran across a pastor who said that this particular text that we're going to look at this morning, verses 13 through 16, is a text, and I'm quoting him, that needs to be burned into the thinking of Christians more than any other text in the Bible. And um, that's a pretty heavy statement. And so I'm going to tell you this morning, I, I would tend to agree with them. It's certainly, if it isn't one of, uh, if it isn't the most important, it's, it's a very important passage for the Christian to understand and to know and to even, as he said, have burnt into your mind. So uh, with that, we're going to look at it here in a moment, but before I read it, Let me tell you some things up front. There are two uh, imperative verbs, imperative verbs, and we know that, you only know that by looking at the Greek. They're in in the imperative mood, and and so what does that mean? It means they're commands or orders, okay? Commands or orders. There's two of them in 13, 14, 15, 16 in this section. The first one is... Set your hope. You'll see it here in a moment when we read it. It's in verse 13. Set your hope. It's an imperative verb. It's a command. Okay? Also translated, fix your hope in another uh, translation of the Bible. The second imperative verb or command or order is found in verse 15, and that's be holy. Be holy. Set your hope. And be holy. These are the primary commands in this section of God's word. Now, everything else that Peter says here in this passage basically supports one of these two commands. Okay? It supports one of these two commands. So that's why I titled today's message, Hope and Holiness. Hope and Holiness, because that's what we're going to be looking at And those are the commands concerning those things that we find here in this section of God's Word. And as we're going to see, I'll tell you right up front, the Christian life 
is to be a life of hope and holiness. Yet, these two areas are the very areas, at least in my experience, where I see Christians struggle the most. Or fail to excel as they should. Hope and holiness. As a result, beloved, of failing to excel as we should or not faithfully obeying these two commands, the church is weakened. Its testimony to the world is marred. Christian lives are unnecessarily troubled because of their failure to come under these two commands. And evangelism, as I'll show you as we work through, is not a priority or it's undermined. These passages, this text, and these commands are really important for the Christian to understand and to fully embrace and submit their lives to. Are you with me? Serious text this morning. Not that whenever we look at God's Word, it's not serious, but really serious text this morning. So in order to consider it properly, we need a little context. So we're going to actually read right from verse 1 all the way through verse 16, because it's a letter. And Peter said things that led up to what he says in verses 13 through 16. And I know we've gone through that. Maybe you weren't here. Can't cover everything that we've covered. But we're just going to read it, and I'm going to make a few comments as we read through verses 1 through 16. You with me? Let's go to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord for a second in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for your church. And Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. And so Father, I, I go to you now on behalf of this little local body right here and everyone in this room to lift us up. And Father, I pray that you would take your word and in the power of your spirit, you would convict us of it. You'd help us to understand it Help us to believe it. Help us to embrace it, Lord. Father, may we repent where we need to repent. And may we come under, bring ourselves under our entire lives, your holy word this morning and every day that follows. Father, have your way with us this morning. For your glory in Christ's name, amen. All right, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, or you can check it up there on the screen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, so here's who he's writing to, to those who are elect exiles. Remember, I did a message on that. Chosen aliens, that's what we are. Chosen by God, and, and we're aliens in the sense of this is not our ultimate destiny, our home. We, are, we have been called out of the world. We're, we're in it. We live in it, but we've, God has called us out of this world. This is not our ultimate dwelling place. Okay? 
elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion, remember, I, and again, this is all building up, just to remind you of some of the things that we've already talked about. The dispersion, and there it says the dispersion, but the, that word the, definite article, it's not there in the original. And why do I tell you that? When it, when it was used in certain areas in the Bible with the definite article, the dispersion, it was a technical way of referring to the Jewish people who had been removed or cast out of their homeland, the Palestinian homeland, and were now scattered abroad among the Gentiles as a minority people. Okay? But here, as I explained to you, Peter uses the word not in its technical sense, but metaphorically in a way to refer to Christian Gentiles, primarily, which is what the church here is, as we've already talked about, who are also outside of their homeland, which is heaven. And they too now are scattered abroad in the earth among unbelievers. They are a minority. So that's why I think he refers to them that way. To those who are elect exiles, you'll notice as Peter moves through the passage, he's constantly trying to draw the reader's mind to their eternal realities. Okay? That's what all of this phrasing's for. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to so those who are elect exiles, chosen aliens of the dispersion. In, and now, writing to specific believers in particular areas of North Asia, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that is, they are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for, chosen for what? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. We talked about that. We, I hammered that home. But now, Peter will come back to this idea again in this section we're going to look at this morning. For obedience to Jesus Christ, you were rescued, redeemed, set apart. Why? That you might obey. That you might render your lives in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one, that Savior, the one you said who saved you. You're to render your life to him in obedience now. All right? He saved you for that. He set you apart. He called you before the foundations of the world. Obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood brought you into the new covenant. Then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right. Three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, he's always looking forward. He's always looking. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. These Christians were suffering for their faith. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now, we're at verse 13, okay? And you notice the first word there in verse 13 is what? Therefore, right? You've been with us, you know. You, whenever you see therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? It, it's therefore because based on everything I just said, now I'm going to say this. So that's why we needed to read it, Okay? Because it flows right out of the first 12 verses. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Pause. Those two activities, these two activities, preparing your mind for action, we're going to talk about it, and being sober-minded, they support the primary command. Okay? The ESV translates this very well. As I told you, there are two commands in this section. Set your hope, be holy. These other phrases that you see are supporting one of those two commands. Some translations, it, it would appear that they're just separate commands, like separate and distinct. So for instance, you need to prepare your mind for action, you need to be sober, and you need to set your hope. No. That's not correct. Looking at the original language, and the ESV does it right, it's preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. Okay? So a little bit of translation stuff there I needed to share with you uh, as we go through the text. So set your hope. There it is. First primary command. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? This is in support of the imperative command that we'll find in 15. In other words, how is one to be holy? Uh, by not being conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. There it is, second primary command. It's in the imperative. In all your conduct, since it is written reference to the Old Testament scriptures, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay? How many of you know that the Christian is to be holy? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've been around the church at all, you've probably heard this, right? Be holy. I want to talk to you about that, though, this morning, and uh, certainly even how it connects with this hope of ours. But... Um, Listen, the command to be holy is not legalism. Okay? Don't confuse the two. Sometimes people get confused. They go, oh, you're, you're telling me I need to be holy. I think you're just a legalistic Christian. No, 
Legalism is a different thing and an abominable thing, okay? But the command to be holy is God's command. So it's not legalistic to call the church to holiness. It might be legalistic to um, I, I define holiness in whatever way you'd like to. So for instance, maybe your own uh, uh, personal uh, opinion about what it is to be holy, and so then I put that on you and I say, you're not being holy because, uh, I don't know, you're a woman and you wear pants, you see. Okay? That's legalistic. But the command by itself to be holy, and if we understand that rightly, is not legalistic at all. It is the word of God. And we're to bring ourselves under it. You with me? Just trying to make that distinction for you. So, verse 13, as I said, therefore, right? Therefore, all right? So, I read you the context. So, what, what we have here is as you get to this section, you have these imperatives, two of them. Like I told you, they're commands. What are the two imperatives? I want to see if you've been watching and listening. What are they? There's two in this section, two commands. What are they? What's the first one? Yes, yes. And what's the second one? That's great. That's great. I have definitely said it enough times. You've got it. Okay. So in the first section, 1 through 12, what we have there are indicatives. Indicatives, Okay. So before, I'll explain it, before Peter gets to the imperatives, the commands, he first gives indicatives. What are those? Statements of fact. Hey, I just saw you. I just saw you. Hello. (laughs) Uh, I'm blind, basically, past the fourth row, so I'm sorry. Hello, I'm glad to see you here. So uh, indicatives are facts, all right? So Peter is unloading a boatload of, of wonderful facts, okay? But it's, it's in light of those facts that he then issues the imperatives. Set your hope, be holy. Now, I, I am explaining that to you because the last thing you want to do is get these things reversed, okay? In other words, it's in light of, it's in light of your, your great salvation, your merciful God, your future inheritance, your new status as chosen aliens, exiles. It's in light of your ultimate destiny. It's in light of the superior nature of your future that I now call you to set your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ and the grace that he is bringing you and to be holy. You with me? Do you, do, you understand, do you see the flow? See, if you just started out with, be holy, right? And set your, I mean, first of all, what do you mean? What are you talking about? But be holy, that command must only be given to the one who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has freed them from sin, the one who has empowered them now to live for God. See, I got to get the indicatives right. I got to unload those first before I start shooting off commands. Unfortunately, people get them backwards. So people think they're, they're trying to make their way to heaven by being holy. No, beloved, that's not possible for an unbeliever. It's not. Rather, the scriptures say, as a saved individual, as one who has been called by God, you now be holy as you're on your way to heaven. 
See the difference? Different motives, too. Different motives. As I'm looking and longing for this place, I'm to, to live the place where I'm going to be, you know, with the Holy One. I'm, I'm then longing to be holy. Very different motivation as opposed to, I know I'm a mess, so I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to be good enough to get there, which we know doesn't work. So indicatives, imperatives. Woo! Now, there's only one glass up here today because I've always told them I don't need to, and I may have made a mistake. Maybe I'll need two. So right before the command, okay, Peter describes, this is what I was talking about, the first command in 13. He describes how believers are to set or fix their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How is that? Well, that is by, according to the text, preparing their minds for action and being sober-minded. Let's look at those phrases. First, preparing your minds for action. Uh, uh, Another translation puts it this way, with your minds ready for action, okay? Literally, the Greek, if you look at the original language, the Greek reads girding or binding because girding is a weird word that we don't typically use. Binding maybe makes more sense. Girding or binding up the loins of your mind. (laughs) That's what it literally says. Girding or binding up the loins of your mind. The loins, if you had to find it, it's, it's the hips and the front of the body below the waist, this area. Okay? Loins. You with me? Okay. Peter actually says, girding up the loins of your mind. Okay. Girding up your loins was a figure of speech that we don't use, but it was used, uh, and it, was a, it pointed to a, an actually a Middle Eastern practice of, of gathering up long robes, because that's what they wore. This isn't like in the morning when they're going to the bathroom. This is what they, this was their clothing, these, these kind of roby things. Still in the Middle East, you see this. They would, they would gather up the long part of their robes around their waist, and they would tuck it in around their belt. Gird up your loins, so they'd bring it up here. Why, would, why do you think someone might, you know, take the edges of their robe and stuff and tuck it into their belt? Huh? Trip? Did you say Trip? If you didn't, it doesn't matter. I just said it. Okay, trip. So that the idea is that they're preparing themselves to do something. So if it was work, if it was to take some action, if it was to battle, right? Kind of like, you know, we kind of have a phrase, but it doesn't exactly cross over. You know, roll up your sleeves. It's time to get to work, right? Which I'm not sure what that even, I mean, I get it. I get the idea because I can be with my sleeves down and still work. But, you know, you don't want, maybe you're in doing equipment or something. You don't want your sleeves to get caught in the equipment. So you roll up your sleeves. Does that make sense? Same kind of idea. Gird up your loins. Well, and, and the idea is, is that. It's so that you don't trip. You want to you get rid of entanglements. Anything that might entangle you as you get ready for action or you, you proceed with action, right? So you pull up your robe. Now, uh, here, though, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. And so that's why English translations say, simply, they walk away from that and they go, let's just translate it like this, this so people will understand. Prepare your mind for action. But the idea is removing any entanglements uh, that might slow you down or make it hard to act. Okay? 
So one writer says this, girding up one's loins is that preparatory action which makes a person ready to take action, okay? And move about freely without hindrance. Make sense? Okay? To fail to do so is to invite trouble. If I'm going to if I don't do that and I go to run, I might trip, I might fall, or I might not be able to complete the action that I intended to. Peter tells us we are to uh, gird up the loins of our mind. And then one writer adds this, and I think this is, I think this is what it, the idea here is. Peter metaphorically applies this process to the mind. He urges believers to pull in all the loose ends of their lives, meaning to discipline their thoughts to discipline their thoughts. Um, In order to set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you must be preparing your mind. You You must be disciplining your mind to focus on that, to give your mind to that. I don't know if you know, but there is a war being waged for your mind. You with me? Yeah, we see it in the school system for our children, but the war doesn't end there. Really, it begins there, and it continues in the world. We have a lot of stuff coming at us all the time, and we're taking it in through our eyeballs or through our ears. And if you're not careful, beloved, it will cloud you, it will distract you. So Peter says, preparing your minds for action, you got you to gotta pull those things away, because if you want to do what you need to do and fulfill the command, which is to set your hope fully, and we'll talk about that in a moment, you're going to have to gird up the loins of your mind. You're going to have to discipline this thing. But I'm going to tell you, Christianity, it's right here in the sense that most of what we're called to, we have success or failure. It happens right here first, okay, right here. So the next thing he says, prepare your minds for actions, and being sober-minded, sober-minded. The ESV translates it sober-minded, but it, it doesn't actually say minded, Okay? Again, it's the ESV, and other translations do this too, trying to help you understand what Peter's getting at. It actually just says, be sober. And just so you know, that word literally means not drunk or not intoxicated. Okay? That's what it literally means. But in the New Testament, it's not used that way. It is used metaphorically. In other words, Peter's not saying, all right, guys, gird up your loins of, the, of your mind, and by the way, don't be drunk so that you can set your hope fully up. He's not saying that. But he is using that term metaphorically to mean, I think, be clear-headed. Be clear-headed. Someone who's intoxicated uh, with alcohol or drugs or whatever, they are not clear-headed. They also can't exercise sound judgment. So the word is used that way. Like, if when the Scriptures call you to sober living, the idea is that you will exercise sound judgment in all of your life, okay? You'll be clear-headed. You'll think rightly, think appropriately. Uh, Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 5, 8 as well, and there he says this, be sober-minded, same word, be 
watchful. So here's a little different context so you can see it. Your adversary, the devil, this is why I'm telling you this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. All right? You need to be clear-headed, Christian. You need to exercise sound judgment. You need to be aware because there's a great enemy who wants to destroy you and the people of God. So here, in this context, in order to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter says, you got to gird up the loins of your mind, you got you to remove those things that would entangle you so that you can't set your hope fully on the grace of God, and you need to be clear-headed. You need to think rightly. One person says this, a, this, this idea of sober-minded, it means this, a calm, steady state of mind that evaluates things correctly. Leave it up for just a second, please evaluates things correctly. Beloved, in the, in the context of Christianity, if I were to tell you, you must evaluate things correctly, what might you think that I mean? I'll tell you. You must evaluate things biblically. Biblically. That's correctly, okay? You must evaluate things biblically from a biblical mindset. Another writer commenting on this passage and this idea of sober-mindedness, he says this, this is interesting, consider this, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized, anesthetized, which means sedated, by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, They lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. Do not, in a sense, be intoxicated by the world in which you live. Do not allow yourself to become dull to the things of God and most importantly, to the coming of your Lord and Savior and the grace, salvation that he is bringing you. That, that's the command. This, this is why, and I'm gonna let you know, I never started this timer I'm sorry. So this is why I have to get back in the swing of things. You know, I miss a week and everything falls apart. This is why, for instance, I would tell you over and over again, and the scriptures affirm it, that, that church, being part of the church, being, being saved, first of all, but then plugging in, being involved, showing up, I believe is so important. If I had to attribute my growth to one thing, certainly it's the Spirit of God and all that, but One thing, one critical thing, it has been since I was 19 when I finally got saved, I have been a part of a local church. And by that I mean I attended every Sunday and got involved, studied, you know, took advantage of what they offered to help me grow in my faith. And and I say all that because I have gone one or, you know, occasionally when I go vacation, I go a couple weeks apart from the local body. I'm going to tell you personally, the impact that that has on my mind and my soul is not good. Okay? Yeah, pastor, your pastor, it's not good. I recognize right away, I need the body of Christ. 
I need the local church. I need to be plugged in. Because in order for me to to stay sober-minded and to keep my hope fixed, which is so important, I'll talk about it in a second, I need to be constantly reminded of that. I need to be around brothers and sisters that are going the same place I'm going, who are speaking the same things. I need to sing about that grace and that salvation. I need to hear it read in the scriptures. I need to hear someone tell me again, set your mind on these things. I need that. So beloved, if I, if I could tell you anything, don't neglect church involvement. People who go two, three, four weeks, they come once a month, once every two months. I'm going to tell you, this isn't, this isn't to draw you out or say there's something wrong with you. No. I'm pleading with you, don't do it. You hear me? I'm pleading. I'm not beating up on you. I'm pleading with you. For the sake of your soul, okay, make your involvement in the church an absolute priority in your life. And, and we did that 20-something or so or years ago. So that, that is what we do. And it, honestly, people go, how do you have the marriage you have? Well, certainly the grace of God. But that grace is manifested through his church. Huh? That's where I found it. That's where I experienced it. Anyway, just a plug or the local church. And if you don't like this one, okay. Find one you like and go there consistently, okay? This is not self-promotion. This is promotion for your own soul and for the glory of God. All right. First Peter 1.13, here we go. We've looked at these um, phrases that support the main command. Let's look at the main command. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, doing those things, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna work backwards from the end of the sentence, okay? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's simple. Uh, the revelation, it's the revealing. That's, it's a revealing. So the one who is now invisible will be made visible. That's what the word basically means. So imagine Curtains closed, you can't see me. The revealing, okay? That's what we're looking for that. We're looking. We can't see him now. We see him with eyes of faith, but I don't see my Lord Jesus as I will see him when he comes and reveals himself. And when he does, he's not gonna be like, pick-a-boo. No, not like that. In all of his power, right? In all of his glory. Huh? Man, I long for that day because I'm not gonna be afraid. I'll be like, yeah, baby, come. Come and set this world, this messed up world, aright. Right? I won't be in fear. There'll be many who are. I won't. So I long, I, I, I desire to see him revealed. Okay? So let me ask you, are you setting, we're supposed to set our hope on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, are you setting your mind on his return? Or are you fixing your mind on your present circumstances? Or on this world that's passing away? You know, we've talked about these themes over and over again, but that's because the scriptures keep talking about them because it's so critical for us as believers. What occupies your mind? 
That's my question. What occupies your mind? How often in any given day are you thinking about the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's not like that's all we think about, okay? But in any given day, do you go a whole day without ever thinking about it? Do you go several days? Do you go a week? If you are, you're not obeying this command, okay? And beloved, there are ways to help us do that, certainly, right? So I notice, you know, music, right? You listen to certain music, you'll, it'll never probably inspire you to think about the revelation of Jesus Christ. You listen to other music, and that is exactly what it does. You read your word, and I bet you you'll be inspired to think about the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't read your word, and who knows? You are involved with the church and actively studying the Word of God. I bet you you're going to be more inspired to think about the revelation, reminded again and again, right? So there are ways to get at that, but however you're getting at that, get at it. Do it. Fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, backing up. You know what's so awesome about this revelation? His coming? The grace that he's bringing. Whew! Right? So this... Look at the text. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses the word grace, okay? And I, I, I talked to you about this before. He does it again in chapter 1, verse 10. We read it as another word for our future salvation, for all that that means, for the consummation of it, for the glory that will be ours, those who are in Christ. Okay? It's, if you will, future grace. It's our future grace that's coming to us. It's going to be revealed at the, at, the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ because he's the one who's bringing it to us. Now, I like the fact that Peter uses the word grace. I said this before when he uses it for salvation. Why? It's fantastic that he does it. Because when you think about grace, what do you think about? Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. Huh? Unmerited, undeserved favor. God's kindness to those who deserve not his kindness, but his wrath. What is being brought to us is unmerited, undeserved favor. Our resurrection bodies, the glory, the kingdom, the salvation, life with God apart from sin, all of it, all of it, undeserved and unmerited. We didn't earn it. We could never do anything to acquire it or pay God for it. Rather, he brings it. It's his gift to undeserving people like us who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you something. If you're fixing your mind, okay, not on clouds up in heaven and angels with harps, that's silliness, it is. I Honestly, I, that's Hollywood's version of heaven. And I'm telling you, that does nothing for me. And it shouldn't for the Christian because it's not true. How boring how boring, how ridiculous, how non-motivating. I think I'd rather stay on earth. Even as messed up as it is, it seems like a better time down here. 
But that is not the heaven that is coming. It's the great kingdom of God with all of its glory. It's a, it's a life free from sin. It's living in glorified, resurrected bodies, immortality. It's so many wonderful and beautiful things. It is life on earth, but a new earth and in a new heaven and in new bodies. There are relationships and there are things to do and oh my goodness. And all of it is undeserved and Christ is bringing it to us, okay? Now, you think about that. You think about what's coming, really what's coming, and you think about the fact that it is grace that is coming to you. You think about it. What does it produce in one's mind to think about these things? You don't deserve a bit of it. I don't either. But my king is coming, and with him, he brings his reward. He's going to pour it out on us. We were rebels. We were rebels with before he reached down into time and space and, and saved us, took the blinder off our eyes and unstopped our ears and gave us hearts and faith that we might look to him as Lord and Savior and cry out, save me. Hmm? So what's that produce in one's heart? That kind of grace that's coming to you, what's it produce? What do you think? Huh? Oh my goodness, joy. Real joy. How about... A thankful heart, a grateful heart, as my brother said, a joyful heart. How about this? An obedient heart. Why might that be? I don't know. Let's see. This, the God of the universe, uh, who rescued me out of the pit even though I was in rebellion against him, that one, not only has he rescued me, but he has saved me and is going to be giving me this great glory, this great grace that is to come. That one has called me to live for him. Father, I, I, as, I, as I meditate on this grace that is to come at the revelation of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I desire to live for you. See? I, I want to follow you. That is natural for someone who has received such great blessing. It's natural, beloved. You even see it in, in our personal relationships, right? If someone goes out of their way, out of their way to do something for you, makes a great sacrifice for you, what is your natural inclination? Now, we get messed up here because sometimes it's, I'm going to pay them back, okay? So that's not how it works with God. But Sometimes we think this way, I would imagine. We think, man, I, I want to, you have been so kind to me, so gracious. I want to, I want to, is there anything I can do for you? Hopefully not so that I can try to make it up and we can be even again. No. But is there anything I can do for you? Do you know what I'm saying? Huh? Right? So someone, somebody saves you, you're in war and they save you from death. You know, you talk, the soldiers come back and they go, man, that's it. I, I owe him my life. You've heard them say that? I owe him my life. Whatever he wants, whenever he asks, I'll give it to him. Man, save my life. Huh? So now, right? As I think, now think about this. Yeah, he saved my life, but in this case, I didn't even deserve to be saved. I deserve to be killed. 
I deserve to experience God's wrath, to have his hand come down on me and crush me, and yet, and yet, in his grace and love and mercy and according to his sovereign plan, he redeemed me, purchased me for this great grace that is to come at the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. Unbelievable, on a whole nother level. And so my heart, as I meditate on these things, says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And you don't have to wait to hear some voice out of the sky because he, he went ahead and recorded it right here. Huh? You see what I'm saying? You see how hope leads to obedience? All right? We're not going to get to the, um, the holy part. So you better come back. <laughs> you better come back or I'm going to show up at your house with this message. Um, because they go together, but let me finish this part, okay? Set your hope. He doesn't just say set your hope on uh, the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, look back at the text, what's he say? Set your hope what? What's it say? What's the word that comes after hope? Fully, fully. So this adverb is used only here in the New Testament, only here, and it means completely, fully, perfectly, completely, fully, perfectly. And so one writer says, listen, it demands that Christian hope not be half-hearted, right? This isn't a like, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about it, you know. It's one of the many things I think about, you know, and I fix my mind on. No, no. This is like, give your, give your mind fully, fully to this hope. Set your hope completely do it with all your mind, you know, all your heart. You know what I'm saying? That, that's what works. That's what God calls us to. That's what moves us to live for our God and Savior. Set your hope. Fix your hope. It's, by the way, I'm almost done. Set your hope. Fix your hope. Set your hope. Fix your hope. It's a command. So it calls for obedience, right? It's not a feeling. That's not what Peter's talking about. It's not a, I feel hopeful today. It's not, it's not that. He, he doesn't say, you know, hopefully you'll feel hopeful. No, he says, set your hope. Fix it. It's a matter of the will, beloved. You must choose to do it. There are many things competing for your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, fix your hope. Choose. Execute. You with me? It's a matter of the will. It's no different than when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's a command. It's a matter of the will. I've talked to many husbands about this. Yeah. Right? You choose to do it. It's no different with this. All right? Satan wants you to do anything but that. But you must do it, nonetheless. Even in the midst, or I would say most certainly in the midst of the most difficult circumstances in your life, fix your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See what I'm saying? It's a choice. 
So I'm thinking this. I'm not going to. I'm going to think this. I'm going to set my mind aright. So live expectantly. That's really what Peter is saying. Live expectantly. Keep your eyes locked on the prize. Remain focused on in anticipation of the incredible and righteous future that Christ is bringing to you. Choose. Choose to be eternally minded. You with me? Our natural default is not that. Hello. Our natural default is to be caught up in all this. Is that not right? We're drowning in this thing, man. I say, I'm done drowning. You swim, swim, get to the top and look up to the sun. Choose to always look at the world through your your future grace glasses. Huh? Your future, think of it that way. I'm going to put on my future grace glasses. And you know what? It's like when I got a pair of polarized sunglasses. Man, everything's different. If you've never done it, you don't know what I'm talking about. But wow, everything's just, yeah, it takes out the glare. Again, not a pitch for polarized glasses. But I'm just trying to use that as an illustration. I put those babies on. The world did look different. It looked much better. Okay? I saw it differently. Okay? You put on your future grace glasses and you see craziness, but you see it through your future grace glasses it's a different experience. It doesn't make the world any better, actually, but it makes your heart and your mind better. Be mentally disciplined and remain clear-headed. And beloved, the consequences of not obeying such a command are many, are many. So that's why I said, and that's why I agree with this pastor who said this is... Uh, Probably the most imp- this passage needs to be burned into the minds, Christian minds, more than any other passage in the Bible. I'm going to tell, wh- tell you why I agree with that. Because as I counsel people and try to help people, which is what I'm called to do, and so are you as well, uh, your brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you what my experience is that I often keep going back to that I talk to them about. It's one of two things, generally speaking. It is their hope. They are not fixing their hope on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're not, or they're failing to do so, or they don't even understand it fully, so we help them with that, but they're failing to do that, or it's their lack of holiness. And sometimes it's usually a combination of both, okay? So we'll talk about the holiness issue. It's those two areas where I'm often consulting, counseling, discipling people who are in difficult times. On the hope issue, it creates all kinds of chaos and a mess. So depression and anxiety and stress that is not needed, okay? A lack of focus, a lack of concern for the things of God. All of that, my friends, can stem, assuming you're a believer. Of course, if you're not a believer, then you have no care for those things anyway. But there are many, you know, People who profess to be believers, they're not. That's a different story. So they're wondering why they don't care about the things of God. It's because you're not a believer. That's a different story. But even for the believer, they can find their heart being weighed down by the things of this world and this life and all the troubles that it brings, right? And they start to lose their focus and their care for the things of God and the reading of the word and being with his people and living for the Lord and telling someone about the son who's coming, right? 
They need more than anything like all of us to fix, to set our hope on the grace that is being brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to do that, beloved. Let me pray for that this morning. Father, God in heaven, let me first, on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ here and myself, just confess to you, openly confess. There have been many times where I have allowed my mind to go everywhere else except to be fixed on the great salvation that is mine and is coming in Christ Jesus. And Father, to not be eternally minded, but to be so intoxicated with the stuff that's happening now and in the present in this crazy world. And, and Father, we, we confess that is not your desire for us. That is not your will. Father, I just pray that, that we would take this, this first command. We just looked at the first one here in your holy word. That we would take it so seriously. That we would be mindful of, our, of what we are thinking about, of what we're focusing on as we move throughout our day from day to day. Father, help us to be more sensitive to that and to see that maybe much of our time is not given to the eternal in our minds. And if it's not given to the eternal in our minds, then our lives won't be given to the eternal here in the present. And that is the tragedy. Father, help us. Uh, May your spirit convict us now and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Father, Show us and remind us through your word and through your spirit to, as we prepare our minds for actions and being sober-minded, to set, set our minds on the grace that is going to be brought to us at the revelation of our sweet Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Father, I know as we do that, we will be incredibly blessed. But even more important than that, you'll be honored. You'll be glorified because it will have the impact that you want it to have on our lives. And Father, so many of us, how many of us suffer unnecessarily due to anxiety and depression and stress? If only we would look, look, and discipline our minds to focus on that which is to come. What relief we would find. What joy we would find. What thankfulness we would find in our hearts. And oh, how our lives would be impacted for the better. And oh, how we would might be drawn and motivated to live for you in an even more powerful way. Father, I pray you do that work in the hearts and minds of your people. And those that are here who do not know you, they have no hope. And 
they're awash in this world. This is where they live, and this is their focus, and that is it, and that's all they have. And Father, for them, I pray that you even now, through this passage or through what was said or through the singing or something today, might draw them to a place where they would realize they need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need a Savior. They need to turn to Him, confess their sin to Him, and cry out for Him to save them. Father, I pray you might do that even now and those that are here who do not have a saving relationship with you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.